Let's go to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be a little bit in chapter 18 and a little bit in chapter 19 today. Last time we were in the book of Acts, which was a couple weeks ago, we came to the end of Paul's second missionary journey. First one he took with Barnabas, the second one he took with Silas, and then he picked up Timothy along the way, and Luke as well. And then in verse 22 of chapter 18, he comes back to Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria, which was the church that had sent him out. And immediately in the story, verse 23, he goes back out on his third missionary journey. And he began, as he always did, by going back to Galatia and Phrygia, which was where he went on his first journey. So those are the churches of Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and Antioch in Pisidia, different city named Antioch. So he's already on his third journey. And you'll remember that one of his last stops on the second journey was in the city of Ephesus. And he didn't stay there long. They wanted him to stay, but he said, I'll come back. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and I want to complete the vow that I've made there. And he left Priscilla and Aquila. Remember we met them? Priscilla and Aquila, we met them in Corinth. And they were tent makers also, and they were Jews who had been kicked out of Rome when the emperor had expelled all of the Jews. And Paul made friends with them. They were believers, and they traveled with him. When he left Ephesus, he was on his way to Jerusalem, but they stayed behind. And the story that we're going to see today is one thing that happened while Priscilla and Aquila were there without Paul, and then what happened when Paul showed up to Ephesus. And Ephesus is going to be the focal point of the book of Acts for at least a chapter and, and more than that as well. We're also going to get an introduction to one of the exciting characters of the New Testament. And we're going to have two stories, two little narratives that we're going over today. Both of them concern people who needed further instruction in the gospel to be taught more accurately the way of Jesus. And Luke is opening up a section here, I think, contextually, that chapter 19 contains some of the most radical, miraculous, supernatural stuff that happens in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is pretty supernatural to begin with. There's a lot of amazing stories. But chapter 19, there's Paul's craziest miracles are listed there. There's an encounter with demon-possessed men. There's the magician's guild of Ephesus comes and, and abandons their trade and comes to Jesus. And Luke is setting all of that up. And, and it all ties together. And in this chapter, we get what you could say is the culmination, the pinnacle of the book of Acts teaching on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been pervasive in the book of Acts. Everything has happened by the Spirit. Whenever something was about to go down, the apostle would be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would give instructions to people. He would tell Peter, go downstairs, there's some people looking for you. He would tell Paul, don't go into Bithynia, I want you to go to Troas and then to Macedonia. The church was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke is going to show us some people that were not filled with the Spirit. And rather than just saying, well, that's okay, we're going to see that Paul is going to do something about it. It's an excellent period, you could say, or exclamation point on what the book of Acts has to say about the Spirit's power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. I felt that this verse needed to be learned when I was at Bible college because there was a lot of talk, you know, and it was good talk. It was talk about the Bible. It was talk about church history. It was talk about theology. 
But every now and then, I would have a moment in class where we'd be reading something, and I'd be getting excited about it, and I feel like I'm the only one getting excited about it. And I'm like, guys, it's not just about talking about it. It's about the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. So today, we're going to discuss that. That as far as Luke is concerned, your salvation has not reached its fullness until you've been baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's more than the need today for instruction. It's the need for introspection as well. Paul is going to ask these people in chapter 19, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Their answer was no. And Paul immediately began to correct that in their life. But the same thing needs to be asked of you. Do you have those rivers of living water that Jesus talked about gushing out of your heart? This is not an optional thing. You ever, you don't really see them much anymore because we don't watch a lot of TV. It's all streaming and YouTube now. But remember those infomercials that would come on? And it was always, but wait, there's more. Order now and we'll throw in a second one. Order now and we'll also throw in this other product that we couldn't sell from a few months ago and you can get it for free. That's not what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It's not an additional plus package that you can tack on if you want. Like, hey, would you like the extended warranty on that toaster that you're buying? It's like, uh, no, thank you. I don't think I need that. That's not what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit's power is central to the life of the Christian. And in fact, the life of the Christian is impossible without the Holy Spirit's power. So when Paul met these people, and I think you can make the argument for when Priscilla and Aquila met the man they're going to meet, what was missing in their life was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need to make sure that we ourselves are not missing what Paul saw fit to add to these people. He's like, ah, no, 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 we can't have you walking around without the Spirit's power. Let's fix that right away. So I hope that all of us together can have that same moment with the Lord today. Let's start reading verse 24. I'm about to get ahead of myself. And skip down to verse 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, you might want to circle his name. This is the first time you see him. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately." And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So we are introduced here to Apollos. This is an Alexandrian Christian, and he is spoken of very highly, both here and in the rest of the New Testament. Alexandria was a city in Egypt. It still is to this day. And it was an enormous city, built by Alexander the Great. He liked to name things after himself, so Alexandria was its name. It was known for its learning and its education. You maybe know the story of how the library of Alexandria was burned, and it's one of the great tragedies of history because there were thousands and thousands of manuscripts and volumes there that were lost. But Alexandria also had a large Jewish presence. We talked about how certain cities 
like Philippi didn't even have a synagogue. Alexandria was not that way. There was a long tradition of Jewish scholarship in Alexandria. You maybe have heard of the philosopher named Philo, who was a Jewish man, but he was a philosopher of the caliber of men like Plato and Aristotle. And he was before Christ's time, but a very brilliant man. This is also where the Septuagint was translated. The Septuagint, as I've said before, was the Greek translation, the official Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That came out of Alexandria. And that was used, and is still used, around the world. And this is the translation of the Old Testament that you see quoted in the New a lot of times. So Jesus and his apostles knew of and read that translation. And it came out of Alexandria. And there would be great Christian men that would come out of Alexandria. Men like Athanasius would come from here. It became one of the hubs of Christianity early on. Those were Rome was one, Alexandria was one, Antioch was one, Jerusalem was one, but Jerusalem was destroyed, you remember. So the, the Christians moved to those places. And the first man we see coming out of there is Apollos. So this guy fits the type of where he's from. He has that Alexandrian feel. He's very educated. He has very powerful rhetoric. And he's out to change the minds of the world. That's what academics like to do, right? And he shows up in Ephesus preaching Jesus in the synagogue. And there's Priscilla and Aquila sitting right there. They've never met this guy. They don't know where he's from. And here he comes preaching Jesus. And not only is he preaching Jesus, he's getting it right. It's not some weird Gnostic thing coming through. What does it say? It says that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. They've been sitting there in Ephesus trying to establish this church. And here comes this amazing speaker, amazing preacher, very well learned, understands the Bible, and is talking about Jesus. How cool is that? The missionaries are crossing paths. Have you ever been on a missions trip before and you come across another missions team, like in the airport or out in the street somewhere? It's the coolest thing. I remember when we were in Peru. I was staying in Peru for a summer with a missions group, and we were out somewhere doing a thing. And we see this other group, and you could tell because they all had matching T-shirts on and they had a cross on the back. And they were a missions team from Brazil that had come to Peru. So we couldn't really understand each other, but we kind of like... You're Christians. We're Christians, too. And we all prayed together. What are you doing? We're doing this thing over here. Well, we're doing this over there. And it was a very cool moment because it's like, man, the church is everywhere. We're not in competition with each other. It's exciting. What does it say here about Apollos? It says he was an eloquent man. This is aner, which means man, logos, which means word. So this was a man of words. He could speak. He just had a mastery of the language. You ever hear somebody preach? And you're like, man, how do you talk like that? I know all those words, but I couldn't put them together in that order like that. That's who this was. And he was, it says in the ESV, competent, but I like the old-fashioned translation. He was mighty in the scriptures. That word is dunatos. It's where we get the word dynamic or even dynamite from. He was mighty in the scriptures. And it says that he was fervent in spirit. That word for fervent is zeon. It means boiling he was boiling over in the spirit. So you get a picture of who this guy is. He's a brilliant speaker. He knows his Bible, and he is excited to be there. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 11, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. It's the exact same phrase. So you could read that as saying, be more like Apollos, everybody. This is what we're all called to be, to be fervent in spirit. Now, fervency looks different for different people. 
Some people are very excitable, and when they get fervent, it's loud and it's energetic and they're bouncing around and that's how they are. Other people, more quiet, they're more passive. They're still called to be fervent. Their fervency might look a little different, it might be a little smaller, but you can just see it in their eyes, you know? You ever see two preachers speak like at a conference or something, and one of them comes up and we'll use Calvary Chapel guys. One of them's like Pancho Juarez from East L.A., and he is in, he's moving, and he's like this, and his eyes are darting back and forth, and it's like, wow, that was great. And then you get somebody like Joe Foch from Philadelphia. Very quiet, doesn't really move, very deliberate. And both of them are passionate about Jesus Christ, but it looks different. This is important to know. Everybody's got to be fervent and zealous for Jesus. Doesn't mean it has to look a certain way. If you're excitable and you're around a bunch of passive people, that doesn't mean you've got to tone it down. Nor does it mean if you're quiet and you're around a lot of excitable folks that you've got to gin something up. Whatever fervent looks like for you, you're required to be that biblically. And we also should have the goal of being mighty in the scriptures. To be mighty in the scriptures. What does that mean? That means you know that Bible so well, nobody's getting any weird doctrine past you. Somebody comes knocking on your door and wants to tell you something weird. You're like, no, that can't be because the Bible says this. They say, ah, yes, well, I know that verse, and here's what it actually means. Like, well, that can't be, because what about this over here? And what about this over here? I know what that passage is saying, and that's not what it means. Then what happens, I've learned, is people get mad and they start to yell at you, or they get really embarrassed and they just want to get away. I've seen both of those things happen. And then they always want to add an extra book. It's like, oh, I see. Your problem is you're just reading the Bible. Have you read this other book? I'm not saying it's better than the Bible. I'm just saying you can't understand the Bible until you've read this first. And every place the Bible disagrees with this, you've got to chuck the Bible out. That's, okay, that's no good. Mighty in the scriptures, so that you know how to study this thing. First of all, it's just knowing what it means and what it says. Being familiar even with like the book of Ezekiel, which we don't read as often as the book of Psalms, let's say. But knowing it, knowing the good principles of how to understand it. The Bible itself will teach you how to read it. First of all, it's a book. It's not complicated. You know what it says. But look at how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. Just do that. Look at how the Old Testament, even the prophets, will refer to one another. Or how the Lord refers to His own word. Look at how Paul structures his letters. Learn to think that way. That's what it means to be mighty in the Scriptures. It should be a goal for all of us. Not just reserved for pastors. Tyler, this is what we have you for. Your job is to be mighty in the Scriptures. My job is just to show up and maybe get some principles to go home with. No, that's not true. Your job is to learn the Word. My job is to teach it to you. Ephesians says that God has given pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets for what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. My job is to equip you. My job is to give you everything you need so that you can go and do ministry. My ministry is to help you go and do your ministry. I don't go to your workplace. I don't live in your neighborhood. I don't have the friends you have. I don't have the influence you have. My job is to equip you to get out there and go do that. A lot of folks want to get mad at their pastors because they're not doing something that that person knows they're supposed to be doing. Well, why don't you care about this, this, or this? Well, I do, but I've got all this going on. Well, we've got to do something about it. You seem very passionate. How can I help you go do that? Right? We're all supposed to be mighty in the scriptures, fervent in spirit. You're never required to be eloquent in speech. Praise the Lord for that. Because then a lot of us would be in an awful lot of trouble if the Lord said we had to be eloquent. Paul was not, so you can rely on that. 
But he comes preaching about Jesus. And it says he's preaching accurately. This is good to know because it helps us understand what's going on here. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In the New Testament, most of the time when you see just a blank reference to the Lord, this is talking about Jesus. He's teaching about Jesus. He knows the gospel. But it says he only knew the baptism of John. So Priscilla and Aquila need to instruct him more accurately. So he seems to not to have been up to speed on what's been going on in the church so far, which is okay. We don't have to be aware of everything going on. He knew Jesus, but he only knew the baptism of John. This is one of those interpretive issues that we sit and think, okay, what exactly was Apollo's deficiency here? I think the baptism of John is pretty clear. It's baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what John was doing. He was dunking people under the water as a symbol of dying to the old life and raising up to walk in the new life. So Apollos knew that, and he knew Jesus. Now, there's really two ways of looking at this, two, two answers, I guess, that people typically land on. The first thing here is Apollos knew about the baptism of repentance, and he knew what Jesus had been preaching, but he didn't know about the cross or the resurrection. I find that unlikely, though, because it says he taught the things of Jesus accurately. And I don't know how you can teach about Jesus accurately if you don't know about his death and resurrection. That's kind of the whole thing, you know. But it's possible, I guess. And number two, I think this is the better option. Apollos did not know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because he only knew the baptism of John. So what is it that Jesus taught that could be set in opposition or alongside the baptism of John? Well, we read this a ton in the Bible. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Jesus ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Here it is. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That phrase, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, is in every one of the four Gospels and the book of Acts. There are very few things that are in every single gospel. The gospels are there to provide a full picture. But every single gospel writer thought that was important enough to include. So based on the context of this passage, and especially the passage that comes after this one, I think the best answer here is that Apollos knew that Jesus had died and risen from the dead. We needed to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but he had no understanding of the baptism of the Spirit. He had the John baptized with water part. We're still baptized with water for repentance. But he had no knowledge of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is possible that it is something totally unrelated, but I think that the, the writers of Scripture knew what they were doing, put things close together in order for us to draw conclusions that way. And this is exactly what's going to be explained in the next chapter. So we'll save discussion of what that means. But for right now, I want us to understand Apollos probably did not know about the baptism of the Spirit. And if Priscilla and Aquila say, hey, why don't you come over for dinner? And we'll explain this to you, it says, more accurately. More accurately is important. Not that you've been getting it wrong. It's that you are right, but you can be more right. And I want us to admire both Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos in this story. Apollos was a learned man. He was an educated man. And as far as we can tell in the New Testament, he was the best preacher the church had. Later on, the church would have a guy named John Chrysostom. Chrysostom means golden mouth. 
because he was the greatest preacher in the world at that point. That's kind of who Apollos was here. You just heard him preach, and you're like, man, that guy can preach. We know that when Paul showed up, it says that they were always disappointed in Paul. And you say, no, 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 I've read the, the letter to Romans. I know Paul could preach. It says in 1 Corinthians that they would, they would tease him and say, his letters are weighty, but his bodily presence is of no account. Like, ah, oh, I paid all this money to come see Paul, and now what a, what a waste of my life. But Apollos, though, Apollos never disappointed. Apollos showed up. Apollos was not going to get laughed off the Areopagus in Athens, I'll tell you what. Because Apollos could hold the attention. And the Lord uses men like that. He uses both. But that's who he is. But here come Priscilla and Aquila. They're tent makers. They make tents. He's never met them before. They had a good reputation, I'm sure, in the church of Ephesus there. But they were tent makers. There was a different social status going on here. But they were willing to instruct him, and he was willing to listen. All three of them ought to be commended for this. Apollos could have rejected these people. What are you going to teach me? I'm the one mighty in the scriptures, or haven't you heard? I'm from Alexandria. I've been steeped in how to study the scripture my whole life. I know Jesus. What are you going to teach me? You're tent makers. I'm sure they didn't speak as well as he did. I'm sure they had funny accents. I'm sure that they stumbled over their words. And he's sitting there trying to have this intellectual conversation, and they maybe can't keep up with that level of conversation. He could have said, forget it. I'm not listening to you. There are people who feel that way in the church. There are folks who feel that their education or their title or their skills, they make them automatically better than those without those things. I tell the story, a good friend of mine from back home named Rod he planted a church in Danville, Virginia, and this guy started coming, and he said, I knew he was going to be trouble the minute I saw his Bible, because he had one of those leather Bibles that was engraved on the front, and it said, Reverend Dr. So-and-so. Because not only was he a reverend, he was a reverend doctor. And this guy was always trying to, like, wiggle his way into having some sort of authority in this little church. And if you know Rod, Rod is a painter. Rod is, has been a painting contractor his whole life, but he is mighty in the scriptures, you know. And this guy called him up one time, Mr. Reverend Doctor, and he said, uh, he said, Rod, I've been telling some guys at work about the church, and they want to know what my title is, so what exactly should I tell them? And Rod knew exactly what was going on here, and so Rod told him, he said, tell them you're a slave. Tell them you're a slave of Jesus Christ, because that's all that Paul ever said he was. And the guy goes, Oh, and Rod said, what do you think I was going to say, man, that you're my assistant pastor? And the guy goes, well, I'm not. He says, oh, there's 10 people in this church. I don't need an assistant pastor. <laughs> and the guy left. Is there anything wrong with being a reverend or a doctor or a reverend doctor? No, of course not. But he thought that his reverend doctor entitled him to certain privileges and advantages that other people didn't have. And he thought, well, obviously, I'm the assistant pastor. I, I, have, I have two degrees. I'm a reverend and a doctor, and you're just a paint contractor. But he didn't understand what it meant to be a slave of Jesus Christ, and so, therefore, he was not as qualified for ministry as somebody who was less academically qualified than him. But then, on the other hand, you've got people who are the opposite. They despise educated people. They despise skill or competence or wealth. And they think that being a reverend doctor is not just something that you've got to make sure isn't a point of pride for you. You can't be that if you want to know Jesus. 
I got a lot of flack, believe it or not, even from people who should have known better when I started going to Bible college. Because Calvary Chapel, if you know, this was started by a bunch of hippies that were getting saved and gangbangers and surfers and people that were on drugs that got saved out of that that just were so enthused about Jesus they had to go and tell people. And here's Tyler going to seminary. You think you're going to get anything in cemetery, Tyler? They all thought they were so clever. And the thing is, I probably would have been inclined to agree with them on things they said. But they're sitting there, oh, you know, I don't know if that's, that's good for you. It's like, what are you talking about? It's, it's bad to be educated. It's bad to know the scriptures. What about Apollos? Apollos knew the scriptures. He was educated. He had a rhetorical skill. What do we learn about both of these things? Neither one of those things matters in the long run. Being eloquent and rich and educated or whatever, being a reverend doctor is fine. Knowing nothing academic, just knowing your Bible, not having any worldly skills or any worldly money or any of that stuff, that doesn't matter either. What matters is, are you in love with Jesus Christ? Do you know the Word? Do you have the Spirit within you? That's what matters. We don't despise ability, we don't despise education, and we don't elevate ability or education. Those things are immaterial. They can be an asset or a liability depending on your heart. Jesus called Matthew the tax collector. He called Peter the fisherman. He called Simon the zealot. He was bringing people who would be obedient to him. That's what matters, isn't it? We don't want to hang out on all these other things. And it gets really easy to mock those people. They don't even have their degree. Why do I care what they have to say? Or you say, those people think they're so smart with all their degrees. Both of those things are bad attitudes, okay? We are looking for the truth of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And whatever kind of shell it gets wrapped in is irrelevant. And both Apollos knew that and Priscilla and Aquila knew that. The educated man was willing to learn from the tent makers. And the tent makers were willing to help the educated, eloquent man. Well, if we give him this last piece, then he'll be unstoppable. And people might start loving him more than they love Paul. That happened. But they said it doesn't matter. Because this is somebody that God can use, and he deserves to be instructed in the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Where does your qualification come from as a Christian? It comes from God. Either God has equipped you and called you, or he hasn't. And that's what makes a difference. Apollos had a lot of gifts, but without a more accurate understanding of the scripture, they weren't going to be enough. Same thing for us. We can be gifted, but if we don't have the spirit within us, we're going to be weak. But they instructed him, and he listened. Good for him. And he says, well, I'm going to go to Achaia. I'm going to go to Corinth. Athens was in Achaia as well, but we know for sure that Apollos went to Corinth. And the Ephesian church sent him on, and they gave him a letter of recommendation to the church. And we know he had a great ministry there, because the book of 1 Corinthians talks about him a lot, because the church started to divide, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And then somebody would say, I'm of Cephas, meaning I'm from Peter. He's been a Christian even longer than Paul has. And then some really spiritual people would say, well, I'm of Jesus. And Paul's like, you guys are acting like mere men. Love that. You're acting just like regular people. Paul rebuked them for it because people were like, Paul is great, but I mean, Paul can't preach. His letters are great, but he can't preach. But Apollos is, is a masterful 
speaker. They valued that in Greek culture, didn't they? They valued Demosthenes and Cicero and these people that could speak so well. And then there's Paul. Yeah, you know, whatever. You know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Have you ever seen a good Christian institution divide over different figureheads that they love? There's the one man maybe that does all the hard work and starts it, and then there's somebody else that comes in, and the Lord just blows it up under his ministry, and now you've got these two groups that, well, we stand on the foundation. Yeah, well, we're on the thing that's happening right now. Paul comes in and says, neither one of those people is anything. Only God matters. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we see that Paul is working with Apollos. And he gives an update on what Apollos is doing. Titus chapter 3, he tells Titus, hey, send Apollos on his way. So Apollos and Paul, while we don't read it in the book of Acts, they became ministry partners later on. They were not in competition with each other because the gospel was the only thing that mattered. And some people have speculated, underline that word speculated, that Apollos may have been the one that wrote the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews doesn't have an author's name on it. Traditionally, it's been Paul, but you read it. It doesn't say Paul. It just starts right at the beginning. There's a lot of Old Testament scripture in it. It was written to the Jews. And because it's constructed as this really beautiful piece of rhetoric is what it's called, according to the, the genre, people have thought, that sounds like something Apollos would write. But we don't know. It doesn't say. But it would be really interesting to find that out later on. But... Anyway, Apollos, pretty cool dude. We're not going to see him again in this book, but when you read about him in 1 Corinthians and maybe some in 2 Corinthians too, then you'll know who we're talking about. All right, so let's read chapter 19 now, first seven verses. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Underline that, would you? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So Apollos is gone. You remember Paul has been visiting the churches from his first missionary journey, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, Antioch, and Pisidia maybe. And now he's making his way back to Ephesus. Next week, we're going to spend some time discussing the character and the history of the city of Ephesus. For right now, we're, we're just going to look at this story here. But we do know that the church of Ephesus became one of the powerhouses of the early church. And it says he came through the inland country. Literally in Greek, that's the upper country. What does that mean? It means Paul did not take a boat to get here. Paul traveled through the mountains, probably through what is called the Lycus Valley to get there. So he took the long way, <laughs> is what he's saying. And he found some disciples. That's a very interesting set of words there. Because the question becomes, now are these Christians or are these disciples of John? Or what do we have here? really is not super relevant because we see what happens in this story. But upon further questioning of them, these folks seem to have had a deficiency of some kind. Paul asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit 
say, we have no idea what you're talking about. And I think it's very interesting that when they say, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit, and then he immediately questions what? Their baptism. Well, you were baptized, weren't you? Very interesting. Keep, keep a, that in your mind. We're going to come back to it. Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. We just discussed what that was. That's the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is a little reminder. John the Baptist had a worldwide impact. He was, of course, overshadowed by Jesus Christ, which was only right. He was the forerunner. But you see how they're going around the world, and John's work as the forerunner to prepare the way for Jesus is still going on. And you've got all these people that knew John's gospel and now are ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me read this, this story of John to remind you. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. It says that John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's John's baptism. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts with wild honey. Pretty interesting dude right there. We also know, by the way, he was a Nazarite from the time he was born, which means he had never cut his hair and he had never shaved his beard. He also lived in the desert. So this is a wild man here. This is a wild man showing up. He's not wearing his Sunday best. He's showing up in leather and eating bugs. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now these men, they're similar to Apollos. They needed more accurate instruction concerning Jesus. But they do seem less informed than Apollos was, because Apollos knew Jesus, and Apollos was not rebaptized. These people were. So, like Apollos, though, like these disciples, I hope that we can always be open to more accurate instruction, not get so prideful. I remember sharing the gospel. We were doing the street evangelism one time in the mall, and we said, uh, have you heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And this man said, I'm 60 years old. If I haven't heard about it yet, I don't want to hear about it. I thought, wow, there's an attitude. <laughs> what if you're wrong for 60 years? But he, of course, just kept going. But it's like, that's not the attitude Christians ought to have. We stand firm on the word of God, but we always want to be open to the fact that we may be wrong. Maybe we're wrong reading the scriptures. Maybe we can be open to better instruction. Of course, we want to be like the Bereans who didn't take anything they were told. They went home and they searched the scriptures and made sure they were so. But I hope that that issue can be relevant for us today because sometimes we've got to reevaluate the way we've thought about the Bible based on what the Bible itself says. You ever read something in Scripture and you just go, oh, I was wrong. I thought, I, I've said this before. And I was totally wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I think it is very telling that when Paul was examining these disciples, he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit. This was the kind of question Paul would ask. Oh, yes, we believe. He said, okay. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. And Paul's immediate conclusion was, then there was something wrong with your baptism. There was something wrong with your point of conversion if you did not receive the Holy Spirit, because it's all part and parcel. And then he finds out, okay, these guys aren't even Christians here. 
But the point that alerted him to that was that they had not received the Holy Spirit. There's a couple ways of looking at this. Number one, maybe this was just a standard question Paul asked. When Paul met a Christian, he said, have you received the Holy Spirit? I kind of like that idea. It seems like the kind of thing Paul would do. Or it could have been that Paul was just preaching and talking, and they started saying, hold on, what are you talking about? What is this speaking in tongues thing? I've never even heard of that. What, what, what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? What's a Holy Spirit? And maybe they asked questions, and he goes, well, I mean, you know, right? You received the Holy Spirit when you were baptized. No, we didn't. Well, what kind of baptism was that then, is what Paul says. Or maybe Paul noticed something about them. Maybe there was something different about these guys that was different about every other Christian he'd met. Maybe there was just a lack of love in their heart. The character, the fruit of the Spirit was not being demonstrated in them. Maybe there was a real reluctance to discuss anything miraculous or supernatural. Who knows? And Paul just goes, let me ask you guys something. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? No, I knew it. Let's talk about baptism here. Whatever the case, you can draw the conclusion from this passage. And this is a disputed passage. Lots of people have different opinions on it. But what is absolutely clear is that Paul expected that every Christian would have had an experience with the Holy Spirit. It was expected. And that it was at least theoretically possible for a Christian to believe and not have encountered the Holy Spirit's power. Here's how we can look at this. Remember what Jesus said, John 7, verses 37 through 39. And I'm going to have to not tell the whole story for time's sake. But on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Oh, we love that. We love that. Oh, it sounds so nice. We put them on our little bookmarks. We cross-stitch it and hang it on the wall. Living water, it sounds so great. But what does it mean? He said this about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. To have rivers of living water coming out of your heart is a description of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, according to Romans 8 9, you cannot be a Christian unless you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. But this is something different. This is something more. This is rivers of living water. Let me explain the doctrine of this. We've gone over it before, but I do want to make sure we get this. In John chapter 20, verse 22, before his ascension, after his resurrection, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And in John 20, 22, it says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is before Pentecost. So in that moment, the apostles were what we would call saved. They had received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has had that experience. According to Romans 8 verse 9, if you do not have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not saved. And we know that you're saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we mean by saying we are temples of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, the Spirit comes to dwell within you. But after this, after Jesus had breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in John 20, 22, the apostles received the Holy Spirit, but we know what happened in the day of Pentecost. That was earthquake, sound of a rushing wind, tongues of fire coming upon the church. 
They were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, experiencing the fullness of what the Spirit can offer you. Now, many people want to say, no, there's only one thing. You have one experience with the Spirit, and that's when you're saved. Because what they read is Romans 8 9 says, If you do not have the Spirit, you do not have Christ. And we know that you're saved by grace through faith if you confess with your mouth and so on. So they say, therefore, every Christian has all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. Okay. If you're trying to defend once for all salvation, I'm all on board with you. Yes. You're not going to have, you know, you're baptized and you believe in Jesus Christ. But there's something else. If you don't get that, you're not saved. We're not talking about salvation here. Look at the book of Acts. Now that we have been through this book together, let's look back at what we've seen. The disciples were sealed with the Holy Spirit in John 22 in the upper room. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But don't start the ministry yet because you don't have the power of the Spirit. So they waited in the upper room for 10 days. Then the Holy Spirit came upon them. They all spoke in tongues. Peter spoke that great message. 3,000 people were saved. Okay, but do you remember... That in Acts chapter 3, when Peter lifted up the lame man, it said that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, after they had been threatened by the council, it says they all went back to the house and they began to pray. It said, Lord, stretch out your hand to do miracles and to bring many people to salvation. Help us to speak boldly. And it says the place they were staying was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, the same people again. And every time in the Bible, when someone's about to do something amazing, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul, when he was about to speak to Elymas, the magician that was whispering in the the proconsul's ear, says Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. There are some people that want to call this the second blessing. I don't think that's a great way to describe it. Because when you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. But think of it like an oven or like a fire. You've lit the fire in your heart. But being filled with the Holy Spirit is like when the Lord comes in with the bellows and stokes the flame, and now the flame is shooting out of the the chimney top and all that, and you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing. It's a repeated blessing. We can read multiple times in the book of Acts where Paul or Peter were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not that they were getting re-saved. They were being re-empowered. This is what Paul is asking these fellows about. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? And he expected them to be able to answer that question. To say, "Uh, I think so. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I know what the Bible says. Maybe I have been. The Holy Spirit is not a spy, you know. He doesn't show up all quiet like a ninja and sneak into your heart and sneak into your life. I think he's there. I don't know. It's hard to tell sometimes. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, what happened in verse 6? They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Later on, if somebody had said, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? These fellows would have been like, you bet we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a dynamic force. Every time in the Bible we've seen someone filled with the Spirit, there is a transformation that happens. Often they speak in tongues and prophesy. Not every time. Sometimes they're just filled with the ability to proclaim the gospel well. Sometimes they do miracles. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's just the joy of the Lord overwhelms their heart. 
1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's the point? He says there are different people and the Spirit uses them differently. When I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, it's going to look like this. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's going to look like that. And Paul runs through all those rhetorical questions. Do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? Do all preach? Do all work miracles? And the answer to all that is no, not all of them. But everybody has some manifestation of the Spirit in their life. The Holy Spirit comes upon you to do what? To fulfill the task that He's called you to do. For your own spiritual upbuilding. To live a daily life as His vessel. Jesus Himself was filled with the Holy Spirit when He was baptized. And everybody wants to fight. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit at baptism or after baptism or before baptism? You see all three of those in the book of Acts. Cornelius was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was baptized. Every Christian ought to seek the Spirit's power every day. Now, some folks want to say, no, look, if the Holy Spirit wants to do something to me, that's fine, but I'm not about to ask for it. What? <laughs> Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but here's an imperative, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything in the book of Acts was done by the Spirit's power. And it should be the same thing for your life and mine. And there have been some people that have scared the church away from God's Holy Spirit. People say ridiculous things like, if you open yourself up to the Spirit, a demon might sneak in. Excuse me? You think the Lord's not more powerful than some demon that's going to, aha, I got here first, so I have dibs? You think if you come and pray to the Lord, Lord, please fill me with your Holy Spirit, that Satan can somehow hijack that prayer? Everybody's always got some wacky story. Well, I know somebody who was filled with the Spirit, and all of a sudden they, they started blank, 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 and there's some horrible thing that goes on. I don't really care about stories. You know why? Because the Bible is my standard, not the stories. According to the Bible, the Lord has something for us. The Lord has given us a task that we can't accomplish on our own, but He's given us the Holy Spirit. God has not stopped doing miracles. We've stopped believing in miracles. The Holy Spirit has not left us. We've left Him. There are so many. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Holy Spirit. It means it is possible to quench the Holy Spirit. If we're comparing Him to a fire, it's like saying, Don't take a big bucket of water and pour it on the fire and say, I guess God doesn't do miracles anymore. How do we quench the Spirit? Let me give you two examples. Number one, by unbelief. I just am suspicious of anything that I can't understand with my own mind, that I can't figure out. Well, then what are you a Christian for then? We believe in miracles. We believe in the parting of the Red Sea. We believe in healing. We believe in the resurrection from the dead. You're kind of part of a supernatural thing here. But if we can somehow theologize ourselves into a place where we say, that can happen everywhere except right here and right now for me. That's spooky. I don't want to live my life that way. The Bible says that the battle that we fight is spiritual. It's not against flesh and blood. If you're going to come in and say there's no such thing as anything other than flesh and blood, you're going to lose that battle. That will quench the spirit and teach people to be afraid of what God has promised for us to enjoy. Or you can go the opposite way, and you can give the Holy Spirit credit for all kinds of wacky, weird stuff that makes normal Christians say, no, thank you. When you start clucking like a chicken and swinging from the chandeliers and saying, the Holy Spirit made me do it, Normal Christians are going to go, uh, no, thank you. If that's the Holy Spirit, I don't want that. 
fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, I just couldn't help myself. What? <laughs> you what? The Holy Spirit gives you more control over yourself. Well, not when we prophesy. Do you know that in 1 Corinthians 14, it says that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet? Paul is basically saying to these Corinthians, yes, you can control yourselves, and you're going to control yourselves. All kinds of weird, there's all kinds of dead religion, but there's, all, you know, there's like the difference between, oh, I forget how Greg Laurie always puts it. What does he say? If you have all scripture and no spirit, you'll dry up. If you have all spirit and no scripture, you'll blow up. But if you have the spirit and the scripture, you'll grow up. It's bringing it all together. We have an obligation, Christians, to do it biblically. Not to say, this scares me, so I'm going to leave it alone. It's like, no, this scares me, so that can't be right. What does the Bible say? And I'll tell you that being anti-supernatural is just as sinful as being too supernatural. In fact, it might be more sinful. Because the Lord honors faith. God can work with faith. God can redirect faith. Isn't it amazing how the Lord uses people in spite of all kinds of craziness that goes on? The Lord has a hard time if you can't even get the engine started. Don't worry about what this group or that group has said or done. Open up your Bible and look at what the Lord has promised. Because people say, well, in order to be filled with the Spirit, here's what you've got to do. You know what you have to do? A three-letter word, ask. That's what Jesus said. So let me ask you this as we come to an end here. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? I know you're saved. I know you're baptized in water. But have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Well, if God wants to do something, he's welcome. I'm open, but, you know, we've got to be careful. That's not what it says. Ask, and you shall receive. Well, if I ask, what if he does something weird? I'm guessing none of you gave your children, like, the rotten jack-o'-lantern from Halloween for Christmas. Here you go, kid. Merry Christmas. You're a good parent. You know how to give good gifts to your children. So does God. God knows how to give good gifts. And Jesus said, and you're evil. <laughs> I'm holy. I can give you good gifts. You've been given an impossible task. We have to bear impossible burdens. And it's only through surrender to the Holy Spirit that we can overcome. It breaks my heart when I see so many Christians trying to go after all sorts of odd solutions to do things that God has promised to do for us. That we're not looking to our God to help us bear our burdens. We're looking to some life group hack thing that's going to teach us how to live. How to overcome this, how to overcome that. Five tips to overcome anxiety. Five tips to finally start getting up early in the morning. Five, all these things that the, the Lord is like, I'm here to do that for you. But you've got to be ready and willing to receive the Holy Spirit's power. The Lord wants to do amazing things through you. Even miraculous things through you. We have seen miracles happen in this room. I'm not talking about out in Nepal. I'm talking about right there in this room. We have seen the Lord give us Warning of things that were going to come in the future. In this room. We have seen what the Bible talks about in accordance with the scripture in this room. Is it weird? No. But it's different. It's different because it's like, okay, this is exactly what the Bible says. I'm not really sure how to handle that. You handle it biblically. 
Paul gave us this big, long three-chapter section on how to walk in the Spirit in the book of 1 Corinthians. We love the middle part because 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love. What's the point of that chapter? We've all got the power of the Spirit, but if you don't have love, it's going to get really weird really quick, guys. And then chapter 14, he goes into this big, long explanation of how to do this in the church. The Lord wants your life to be a river of living water. Do you want that? Do you want what Jesus promised? Humble yourself before God. Go home and ask. How do you ask? First thing you got to do is you got to humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm not letting anything else get in the way. I just want what you have. Then confess your sin. Consecrate yourself. Clean yourself out. Wash your feet, as Jesus said to his disciples, so that there's nothing left in between you and God that has to be handled. And then begin to pray and begin to ask for the Lord's power. And then step out in faith. If Peter had said, Lord, if that's you, call me out to come walk on the water. Jesus said, yes, Peter, come join me. And he turns to his fellows and says, isn't that cool, Jesus, that I could walk on water? Well, why don't you? <laughs> Seems a little rash, don't you think? You got to step out. You got to step out of the boat. Lord, give me the power to share the gospel with the people in my neighborhood. Do you never get out and knock on anybody's door? <laughs> Jesus doesn't give us the Holy Spirit so that we can be bodybuilders. He gives us the Holy Spirit so we can be athletes out there in the game. Amen? Our slick preaching, our cute little programs, even our personal determination, those are all great. But like Apollos, if you don't have the Spirit's power behind you, you're only going to be able to do things that are you-sized. But the Holy Spirit wants to empower you to do things that are God-sized. Paul couldn't preach, and the Lord called him to be a preacher. 2 Corinthians 10.10, his bodily presence is of no account. And the Lord said, I want you to go preach the gospel all around the world. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. However you want to frame this issue, I think we have seen that in the book of Acts, the Christian life is to be one of power, both spiritual and personal. We need the Holy Spirit. 